What's up, everybody? I hope you enjoyed the brief stroll through part of the book of Daniel, and I hope that it was informative, and I know it will be helpful moving forward for sure. We have completed chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Revelation, covering the things that were seen, the things that are, and now we pick up with the rest of this awesome book, which will cover the things that take place after these things. This is referring to the things that uh, will take place after the church age, which ends with chapter 3 coming to a close. This also indicates that the period discussed throughout the rest of this book is the last seven-year period of atonement for Israel's transgressions, uh, also known as the, tri- the tribulation period, and it goes all the way through the thousand-year reign and all the way to the final judgment and the new heaven and new earth. So more about that later, though. Today we will take we will take a look at the first part of chapter four, verses one through six. John gets a glimpse of heaven and the most detailed description in all of Scripture of the throne room of God. No one has ever seen the face of God or seen God, uh, so John is given imagery that he can comprehend. You know, we will discuss the significance uh, or meaning of the description of God, the twenty-four elders, the hundred percent presence of the Holy Spirit um, evident in the seven lampstands that you will see, and how this part of chapter 4 indicates that the church is in heaven during this time. You know, With that said, let's jump into Revelation chapter 4 and see what comes next. John begins with what seems small but is important. He says, He looked, and there before him was a door standing open in heaven. This is significant because it reminds us that As a believer, Jesus has opened the door to heaven and granted us access because we have put our faith in him. Remember from our study of the seven churches, we learned that Jesus holds the keys uh, to the kingdom, and specifically the key to the kingdom, and he has the authority and power to grant access, and he does so for those who find salvation in him. John then hears the same voice that he heard in chapter 1 a voice that sounded like a trumpet, which we know um, because of chapter 1, that is Jesus speaking to John. Jesus tells John to come up here, and immediately John is called up in the Spirit to heaven, where he is allowed to see a vision that has been prepared for him regarding a time that will come at the end of the church age. Notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 1. He says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. This is how we know that chapter 4 is the beginning of the third part of this prophecy, uh, or the third part of the book of Revelations, and how we spoke of how they were broken into three parts. This is how we know the third part begins here, okay? because he says, I will show you what must take place after this. So, you know, this is how we know that chapter 4 is the beginning uh, of this third part of the prophecy. The things that must take place next. So after the end of the church age, Jesus says, let me show you what comes next. Revelation 4, 2 through 3 says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. Now there's a couple of different words used to describe these stones, depending on the translation. You know, uh, carnelian jasper, diamond, um, ruby, or uh, sardius. I mean, there's there's a few different uh, terms that are used, but 
they all they're all describing the same thing, which you know he says he has an appearance of jasper and ruby. Some translations, you know, like I said, will have those. They use different um, names for these stones, but either way, jasper is like diamond, and the other stone is red, like a ruby. So these stones are important because they symbolize something that would have made sense to John, who was a Jew, um, and to the Jewish people. The jasper or diamond symbolizes God's absolute purity and perfection in every way. And the ruby or carnelian um, or the redstone uh, in this imagery symbolizes God as our redeemer. This is significant because the high priest of Israel was instructed to wear a breastplate with these two stones uh, on it, along with ten others, uh, ten other stones that were put on the breastplate to represent the twelve tribes of Israel. But the significance of these two stones is that they are the first and the last of the stones, respectively, in the order they were arranged on the breastplate. So, just read Exodus, Exodus twenty-eight seventeen through twenty-one to see the description of what I'm referring to. So these two stones represent that he is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. We also know that Jesus is our high priest and carries the names of each believer on his heart. Not only does this show that he is the first and the last, but it shows that Jesus is God. He is both perfection and our Redeemer. Now, how cool is that? Okay, so next we see that the throne is described having an emerald rainbow encircling it. Or around it. And first, emeralds are green, and green represents life. And the symbol of a rainbow was first given to Noah as a promise that God would never destroy the earth uh, by flood again. So it is likely that God is showing John that the promise of eternal life is guaranteed for believers. So now John describes a scene that has never been mentioned in Scripture with regard to the throne of God. John sees 24 thrones around the throne of God, and seated on them were 24 elders with white garments and crowns on their head. Now, Israel has been led by elders since the time of Moses, and the church has also been led by elders, including you know the pastors or angels, as they were called in chapters 2 of, um, of Revelation that we've already covered, and in chapters 2 and 3, since it's you know since its formation the church has has been led by elders as well so we can conclude that these elders represent the leadership of God's people throughout history and and the church as well so some speculate that the 24 elders are the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes along with the 12 apostles but you know elders was a term not only used to describe the leadership of Israel, but also the apostles like Peter. And Peter was referred to as an elder. Scripture also used the word elder when referring to the leadership of the church you know, throughout history. Also, the, Le the, the Levitical priesthood was divided into 24 orders by Solomon, which each one taking their turn performing you know, priestly duties in the temple. So clearly the numbers 12 and you know, 24 are important, and we know that 12 is symbolic of government or leadership. So that makes you know sense here. You know, they could represent a specific group of leaders as mentioned before with the patriarchs and the and the apostles, or the twenty-four 
can be symbolic, uh, a symbolic representation of the leadership of God's people throughout history. You know, what is important to note here is that they are real people wearing white garments, which uh, we know based on the letter written to the church of Sardis, that the white garments represent the righteous acts or deeds of the believer and that they are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So we know they have been saved by grace and, and faith in Jesus. Also, they are wearing crowns, which means they were seen as victorious and thus received the reward promised to all believers who endure to the end. Lastly, they are seated on, the, on their throne, which indicates that they have ruling authority to some degree, which we also know that that is what Jesus promised to the believers who are victorious. So Luke twenty-two twenty-eight through 30 says, You are those who have stood by me in trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In the letter to Thyatira, Jesus says that the one who is victorious and endures to the end, he will give authority over the nations. And to the church of Laodicea, Jesus says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Later in uh, in Revelation in chapter 20, you will see again the mention of ruling with Christ. You know, when he mentions that the believers that came to faith during the tribulation and did not uh, take the mark of the beast would also reign with Christ, you know, through the millennial reign. So with all that said, we can conclude that John saw the representation of that with the elders seated on the throne, around the throne of God. We will reign with Christ as he promised, and we will be assigned duties and authority accordingly. John now sees lightning and hears thunder coming from the throne. When God appeared on Mount Sinai to give Moses the Ten Commandments, thunder and lightning accompanied him, and the people trembled. So it is likely that this indicates the power and authority of God, and no one approaches the throne without permission. Just like on Mount Sinai, no one could approach God or go up that mountain. Um, he created a barrier around it, more or less, and they were prevented from uh, coming close to him. He only allowed Moses. So then John sees the seven lamps before the throne that represent the sevenfold spirit of God, or 100% of the Holy Spirit. It's the sevenfold spirit, remember, describes the seven traits uh, of the Holy Spirit. And so it, in seven represents 100% or completion. So this just indicates that the, the entire Holy Spirit, the 100% of the Holy Spirit was present um, before the throne. You know, some take this to mean that during the tribulation period, the Holy Spirit is not on earth. But we know that he is omnipresent and can be everywhere all the time. And we also know that a multitude of people will come to faith during the tribulation period. And that cannot happen without the Holy Spirit. Because when you are saved, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Not to mention, it is the Holy Spirit that prompts you and leads you to repentance and salvation in Jesus. So, 2 Thessalonians 2.7 says, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who, who now holds it back, talking about the Holy Spirit, will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. This verse is often misunderstood and taken to mean that the Holy Spirit will be removed 
But one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to restrain the lawless one or Antichrist so that he is not revealed before the appointed time. The Holy Spirit keeps lawlessness and evil in check until God moves him out of the way. But this just means that that um, the given time during the tribulation, you know, at the given time, the Holy Spirit will no longer restrain or hold back the lawless one or evil. But he must remain present in order for people to come to faith and be sealed by the Holy Spirit, receiving the mark of the believer on their forehead, which can only be seen by other believers. And we will talk much more about that later. But the point is, is that when it comes to the Holy Spirit, there, they a lot of people take it as he will be removed from the earth. But when you study it, it actually shows that he's not being removed from the earth, but his um, his restraining of the lawless one or his restraining of the evil will stop and he'll lo- he'll no longer restrain it. He'll get out of the way and allow the the antichrist and the evil to go forth to to fulfill what God has written. So what's really going to happen is the Holy Spirit will still be present because he has to be for the believers to come to faith in that time, but he'll step out of the way and no longer will he restrain the evil that must come during that time. So, you know, so I see the, he says, so I see the seven lamps, you know, and I see the seven lamps personally representing the fullness of God's spirit being present and showing that in this description in verses one through five, we see all three persons of the Godhead or Trinity present in the throne room of God. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit can't be removed for a time. I'm not saying that God can do whatever he wants. I'm just saying that he must be present in order for so many to come to faith during the last days. He will just no longer be restraining evil like he has so far. Now, I will say, however, regarding the 24 elders mentioned that if they are if they represent the leadership of God's people and the church throughout history, then the church itself must be present as well because why would God leave the church behind and take all of the leadership? So if the leadership is all present, then the church must be present as well. But we will get uh, you know to more about that later. Remember what Jesus told the churches. He said that uh, that the church would be spared from the hour of trial that will come on the whole earth, referring to the tribulation period. So also we know that the church age comes to an end as the covenant is signed with Israel and the last seven-year period begins uh, and the 490-year countdown uh, resumes you know, regarding the atonement for Israel's transgre- transgressions. So finally, in regards to the sea of glass, or crystal sea before the throne, there is not much to go on in order to clarify exactly what the significance of it is. It could be tied to baptism in some way, or the Holy Spirit. And there are numerous speculations on it, meaning, you know, on its meaning. But I will say that the description of it being like a sea of glass would denote a calmness and peace, or a stillness before God. Just think about being on the water, especially on a river or lake when it is still and calm. It can have the appearance of glass. Maybe that sea of glass has something to do with a calm peace or stillness found in the presence of God. 
There will be no storms or rough seas in heaven, but there will be a stillness before the throne. His shalom or peace will be present. I mean, that's got to be, that's going to be so amazing. I mean, that's just that, that shalom is going to be impressive. And to me, that's what the sea of glass symbolizes for me is the calmness, the stillness before God, that peace. So, okay, we're going to stop here for today. And I hope that it has been a blessing to you guys. And I also hope that the excitement for what God says in this book is continuing to grow. What we cover today really just gives a clear picture of the awesome and powerful presence of God while also embracing the peace and stillness uh, or his shalom that we will feel in a new way in heaven. And it confirms the promise of Jesus that the believers will receive their reward in heaven and will get to reign with him in his kingdom. How awesome is that? Man, how can you not be excited? God, how do I even begin? Let me just start by saying thank you. Thank you for who you are and for all that you do and for all that you uh, will do for us. Thank you for your word and for your promises that we find in it. I pray for your continued blessings on the study of Revelation, and I pray that you would speak to the to our hearts and teach us your ways. Speak to each one of us according to what we need to hear and let our spirit be lifted and edified by your word. God bless your people. I know that we are a sinful people, but I call upon your mercy and grace and ask that you would pour out your spirit on your church and let the fire of your spirit overtake us and fill us and let us burn with such passion for you that people can't help but notice. Let us live with such conviction that it provokes the lost to seek you. Let our lives serve as a testimony and a witness to the faith and redemption and salvation that can be found in you. Let us be a people on fire for you, Lord, and use us to help bring the full number of Gentiles into the family. All this we pray in your mighty name. Amen.